thank you, Amy, for this invitation, and thank you, all of you, for joining me this morning to talk about my favorite subject, art. I'll start with giving a little background about myself and then explain my journey into doing the five women in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. One could say that my art is divinely inspired. As far back as I can remember, painting and drawing have been a part of my life, and it all began in church. I was kind of a fidgety child, and so my mother had this um, pad and pencil that she kept in her uh, purse. And whenever I got too fidgety, she would take it out and draw something, and then pass it to me. Lynette Farrell was my first art teacher. She encouraged me because she herself was a very creative person. She was trained as a seamstress and when we were children she made her own patterns out of either the paper bags from the groceries or newspapers and she would make our dresses. Soon I was drawing all the time because I just enjoyed it. It took me to another place. And every Christmas when I was asked what I wanted, I would say, a paint set. And I was always a bit frustrated because I would always run out of paint before I filled in all the numbers. I grew up in a house surrounded by music and art. My late father, Arthur Farrell, was a bass baritone. He was a classically trained musician who labored by day as a printer. For a time, he performed Paul Robeson's repertoire with his arranger and accompanist, Lawrence Brown. And one of the best times was when Mr. Brown would come over to rehearse with him. They'd have sun we'd have Sunday dinner, and then after we had the dinner, they would repair to the living room, and Mr. Brown would play, and my father would sing. And they did concerts in the New York metropolitan area where I grew up, and sometimes they even went beyond New York. I grew up in Brooklyn. My father encouraged me to create. He was minister of music at the church we attended, Hanson Place Seventh-day Adventist Church. So he was always uh, looking for new and wonderful songs and oratoria. Each year, each, every other year, our church would do um, either a piece like Haydn's Creation or Handel's Jephthah. So he was constantly listening to records and listening to the radio and exploring new and different types of music. He also taught me about color and composition. Being a printer, sometimes he would take us to work with him on Sundays to keep him company because he didn't work on Saturdays, which was our Sabbath. And he explained to me that they had the Shell Oil account. So he explained to me that this yellow that they used in the printing press, he wasn't just going to pour into the press. He was going to mix a little bit of white and a little bit of red because that was really going to make it pop. So he taught me early on about mixing colors and what colors could communicate. However, he was also a practical man. My parents immigrated to this country from Panama, so they valued education a lot. And he said, get as much education as you can, but also, even though you're going to pursue your art, 
get a job with benefits and a pension. And so I followed his advice, doing both things. After completing a commercial art and academic program at a vocational public high school in New York City, advertising district, I went off to study art and art history at, New York, at State University of New York in New Paltz. And then I pursued a master's in library science at Pratt Institute. That was the practical side. I worked for a time as a librarian in Brooklyn Public Library and eventually entered the Foreign Service doing cultural diplomacy and press work. Throughout my various careers, I painted and exhibited at home and abroad. During that period, much of my subject matter was inspired by the different places where I worked and lived. I was always impressed by the market women in West Africa because they could calculate the exchange rates of just about every currency in the world and give you an answer as to what would be the best currency to pay them in that particular day. They were amazing. Fast forward to 2005. When I became eligible to retire, I decided to devote more time to my art. As I was active in the life of Georgetown Presbyterian Church, religious themes began to surface. Increasingly, I wanted to explore how visual arts could enhance our understanding of scripture and spiritual life. I really felt strongly that if talent was God-given, then we should be able to use all of our talents to communicate God's message. And communicating God's message through images might appeal to those who were visual learners. Images came to me as a result of sermons, hymns, or prayers. For example, this painting, The Richest Woman in the World, was inspired by a sermon that explored what we value. One of the stories in that sermon was about a woman of limited means, uh, considered poor by earthly standards, yet and still, whenever anyone was in trouble or needed something, she was always there for them, helping them in any way that she could. She cared for the least among us. When she had a problem and was in need, everyone flocked to her because of the grace and mercy she had shown others, making her someone I considered the richest woman in the world. So I felt, yes, this is something that I want to explore further, how to interpret some of these stories from the sermons or scripture. When I read Colossians 3.23, it inspired this piece that asks us to work uh, at what we're doing, not as if we were working for a man, but if we were working for our God. And that might help solve quite a few problems in this world. A lecture series helped me decide on next steps. Professor Denise Dombrowski Hopkins, who is on the faculty at Wesley Theological Seminary, was a frequent speaker at one of the Sunday school, school classes we had at Georgetown Presbyterian. Sometimes she would lecture on different aspects of the Hebrew Bible because that was her specialty. Yeah, great. Her lectures and the discussion that followed always fired up my imagination. 
One year, she spoke about the five women in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. It was based on research she had done, and she mentioned an article by Jane Schauberg entitled, Before Mary, the Ancestresses of Jesus. In her article, Ms. Schauberg notes, The opening verses of the Gospel of Matthew trace the ancestry of Jesus back to the patriarch Abraham. Not surprisingly, Jesus' genealogy is an illustrious one, including Jacob, Judah, David, Solomon, and Hezekiah. Somewhat unusually, however, the list includes four women from the Hebrew Bible. In Matthew's Jewish world, she continues, genealogies typically mention only men. Even more surprisingly, the four women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah, that is Bathsheba, have somewhat spotty reputations. The author wonders what would have prompted Matthew to include these women in the genealogy. Each week, Denise explored this question by focusing on one of the women and explaining how she influenced perceptions of Mary. Their inclusion paved the way for understanding Mary and the birth of Christ. I began making sketches of these women. After all, how could I not do something with a lecture series entitled Provocative Women of the Bible? Mm -hmm. According to Denise, all five women showed the men around them higher righteousness. She further stated that the men accepted their responsibility for the women, giving them an identity and a future, legitimating them and their children within the male world. These women prepared us for Jesus, who calls us to a higher righteousness. Around that time, I was accepted in the Artist-in-Residence program at Wesley Theological Seminary that uh, Amy mentioned. If I'm not mistaken, Wesley is one of the very few seminaries that actually requires all of their students to take classes in the arts. They have music, drama, biblical storytelling, and visual arts. As an artist in residence, I taught an art class, but I also got to take a class each semester. The first semester, I took biblical storytelling, which was fascinating because it's how you embody the word. You just don't read it. You actually act it out. So that was interesting. It was like a cross between drama and uh, choral speaking, which we had done in my church when I was a youngster. The second class I took was really fascinating, and it was uh, taught by Dr. Clark, who is, um, I guess, third-generation Christian of South Asian Indian origin. And so it was like a comparative religion course, and it was images, paintings, and illustrations of Jesus interpreted by diff people of different faith traditions all over the world, but also here in the United States, different ethnic groups and cultural groups in the U.S. and how they interpreted Jesus. So the faces of Jesus in the world was fascinating and gave, also gave lots of other ideas. Throughout my year at Wesley, I consulted with Dr. Hop, Dr. Hopkins on the imagery for the paintings of the five women in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. Thanks to her insights and divine inspiration, these works were produced. Tamar. 
Her story is found in Genesis 38. Her duty was to produce an heir to carry on her deceased husband's name. But her father-in-law, Judah, would not allow her to marry his youngest son, which was the practice. She disguised herself as a prostitute and sat on a path that she knew Judah would take. She propositioned him, he accepted, and as a consequence, she became pregnant. Her becoming pregnant out of wedlock was considered a capital crime. However, she proved that Judah was the father because he had given her his rod and signet ring as payment. She was exonerated when Judah said that she was more righteous than he because she found a way to fulfill her duty despite the stumbling blocks he had placed in her path. And that was in Genesis 38:26. She gave birth to twins, Perez and Zerah. Perez was an ancestor of David. Uh, that represents the signet ring. Oh, okay. And so this image here is the Hebrew symbol for the J, for Judah. And um, this was a cord that was wrapped around Perez's arm so that they could tell which twin was which. And then this is the rod that proved that she was not all that bad. She was doing her duty. So Dr. Hopkins helped me with some of the symbolism there. Rahab. Rahab appears in Joshua 2 and 6, as well as in the New Testament in James 2.25 and Hebrews 11.31. She's a prostitute in Jericho who hid Israelite spies, sending the soldiers to pursue them in the wrong direction, and she helped the Israelites escape. In exchange, she asked that her family be spared when the Israelites conquered Jericho. She is instructed to hang a red cord over her door, and that's the red cord that she used to help them escape because her house was right at the wall, threw it out the window, and down the, down the cord they went to get away. Eventually, she was converted to Israel's God. The book of Ruth is really the story of Ruth and Naomi. After demonstrating her loyalty to Naomi, the mother of Ruth's husband who had died, it seemed that Naomi wanted to help her daughter-in-law make a new life and have a family of her own in her adopted land. Apparently, at Naomi's urging, Ruth proposed to Boaz, which was a very forward thing to do back in the day. Ruth is recognized as an ancestor of King David. Bathsheba's story is in 2 Samuel 11. For me, hers is the most painful story in this series. Historically, some have depicted her as a temptress. However, if one reads the text carefully... It is clear that she was at home minding her own business when David should have been on the front lines with his troops. Hmm. Anyway, he spies her from 
his perch. He looks down into her yard. And because he is so taken with her, he rapes her and ensures that her husband is murdered and eventually marries her. To say the least, God is displeased. And King David eventually repents. But I'm struck by the intensity of the pain and suffering that she must have endured as I read the story. The pain of losing her husband and eventually losing that child before she gave birth to Solomon. And reading further, it also seems that Solomon did not always treat her well either. So for me, Bathsheba was one of the saddest stories of all of these stories. Dr. Hopkins said that these four women, some of whom became pregnant out of wedlock, prepared the way for Mary, who was found to be with child prior to her marriage to Joseph. She continued by saying that all five women were living in societies where men set the rules, yet these women were faithful to the God of Abraham in their actions, actions that at first glance might have seemed questionable. I don't know, did Dr. Hopkins come and speak about this particular subject when she came? Mm, yeah, because she had written a book. She was working on a book on the Psalms a couple of years ago. So if this is a theme and a, a subject matter of interest, you might invite her to give the presentation because it is really fascinating how she breaks everything down in much greater detail. So yes, if, if this is a subject matter that's of interest for further exploration, it would be great to have Dr. Hopkins come and, and elaborate. In working on these and other paintings, I ended up reading more scripture and asking more questions about how I live out my faith in a world that often seems so upside down. And this particular piece, um, I think we are often challenged. And I think hope is the one thing that keeps us going. We live in the hope that we can make a difference in our world and we can improve things and we can find others to work with us to address whatever the problem might be of the day. So I live in the constant hope that maybe some of these images might bring some joy and comfort to others. This is one of my favorite verses, and because it's one of my favorite verses, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose, it inspires me and I've done a couple versions of this but I turned this into a note card because it's a message that I like to share with others and so it's a way of doing a little bit of uh, evangelism in a different way 
Most of us, I think, want to use the gifts that God has blessed us with to highlight the love and the grace that God offers us and to share God's teachings. So I think we're challenged every day to come up with ways that we can live out Christ's teaching of grace, love, mercy. And we each have gifts. Sometimes we're not sure what those gifts are, and it takes a little bit of exploration. But I'm hopeful that in time these gifts can be put to good use. So this last image was inspired by the charge we receive each Sunday from our senior pastor, the Reverend Dr. Camille Cook-Murray. I made these note card, these meditation cards a few years back, and a number of people have told me that they refer to these every day sometimes, uh, or quite frequently, because it reminds them of what we are called to do and how we should conduct ourselves as we go out and about in a world that sometimes seems a bit cold. My hope and prayer is that this and other images I have created will bring joy to the lives of those who encounter my work. Any questions? I'm happy to. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Well, living in tropical climates where everything is made more vibrant by the bright sunshine, I've always loved bright colors. When I was a little kid, red was my favorite color, and when my mom would ask me what color dress I wanted, it was a red dress, and she would say, oh, please, another color. But I loved red, so she would always make me a red dress or something with red in it. But when I uh, joined the Foreign Service, I wanted to go someplace where I wouldn't necessarily be able to travel on my own. And so I asked to learn French and go to West Africa. So my first overseas assignment experience was in Abidjan, Cote d'Ivoire. And I landed there, and it was just like this explosion of color with the Dutch wax prints. And also, they had a very vibrant textile industry in Cote d'Ivoire. So it was just like all this color everywhere. And then I had an apartment that looked out over a lagoon. And so beautiful blue water, beautiful blue skies, palm trees, the ladies walking by with the fruit on their head and carrying the babies on their back. I mean, there's just all this inspiration there. And so from there I went to Benin, and Benin at the time was having some hiccups as it was transitioning from the People's Republic of Benin, where they had uh, experimented with communism and found that it didn't quite go with their view of the world. And they shifted, became more democratic, and again, there they had an incredibly rich visual arts tradition. They had picture writing, so they used all these bright colors to uh, create images and symbols and tell stories. So I was surrounded in these places with all kinds of inspiration and all kinds of beauty. My next assignments were in Panama, 
Uruguay, and El Salvador. And in each one of those countries, there is a rich visual arts tradition as well. So there are many, many artists that I got to know, and I got to see all kinds of wonderful artwork. And again, bright colors, with the exception of Uruguay, which is a little farther south. And gray seemed to be the favorite color down there. But, <laughs> but uh, in Panama and El Salvador, there were just so many vibrant colors and, and just walking out the door. So it was kind of hard not to get into that. I studied uh, advertising and illustration in high school, in the commercial art high school that I attended. And that's where I was introduced to gouache paint. And gouache paint is an opaque water-based paint that's used in illustration because when it dries, it dries flat and very vibrant and very bright. So this is, all of these pieces are, let's go back to, go back. This is a gouache painting originally. And how do you spell gouache? G-O-U-A-C-H-E, gouache. It's uh, like an egg tempera, only it's thicker. This is gouache. All of these. And you can play with it, and you can water it down and make it like watercolor and get a watercolor effect. But when you want it to be opaque, it's nice and opaque, and it reproduces beautifully. Sometimes it seems nowadays imagery is the preferred means for communication, whether it's a video or a photo or, or a painting. So it just seems natural that one would try to explore how can we embody some of these stories and texts in, in a visual way to, to communicate with those who prefer to take in their information that way. Yes. After your foreign service, what, what did your position in the foreign service entail? You were doing something art and uh, my cone or specialty in the foreign service was public diplomacy. I started out in the U.S. Information Agency, and then it got merged into the Department of State. So, for example, in Cote d'Ivoire, my job was to work on cultural exchanges. And I was called the Assistant Cultural Affairs Officer for Exchanges. And that meant going out and um, working with others in the embassy to find out if they wanted to nominate people to come here to the U.S. and meet their counterparts and travel around the states in the program we call the International Visitor Program. It's now named the International Leadership Visitor Leadership Program because the 
purpose was to try to identify young up-and-coming individuals in the society and have them come to the U.S. and understand why we make the policies the way we make them, how it's made, and how communities influence uh, policymaking and that kind of thing. But also, for example, if they were a member of civil society uh, or of a non-governmental group that worked with the poor in their country, they would come here and meet with people who were do doing similar work. And sometimes it would be cultural institutions, uh, museums or libraries, uh, people who were working in museums and libraries in their country and having the same problems that we often have here, trying to get people to support them a little bit more. Um, in Benin, for example, they had allocated funding to build a national library, but they didn't allocate funding to furnish it and to get additional materials and things like that. So we often would talk to people about a whole array of things. Other assignments included media relations. I had the distinct pleasure of serving as the press officer in Panama from 1985 to 1989. That's where I met my husband. So it was a nice assignment. It was also a wonderful assignment because that's where my parents are from originally and I got to spend some time with uh, aunts and uncles and cousins and get to know the country that I'd heard discussed around the dinner table all the time and eventually got to visit many of the places that my um, parents would, and grandmother would talk about. And ironically, uh, as press officer, I had a lot of dealings with um, one of the newspapers where my father actually worked when he was a teenager. So it was a lot of fun. Uh, so yes, the media relations, it, usually public diplomacy officers work on cultural exchanges, educational exchanges, media relations, and function as a spokesperson for the embassy and all the different parts of the embassy. Can you give us a little insight into that lovely red coat? Uh, this is uh, made by a mother and daughter team in Kenya. The daughter, one of the daughters lives here and her mom and sister are part of a collective or a group in Nairobi that makes clothing like this and then they ship it to the US and sell it to folks like me and the funds that go back then help the community that they live in in Nairobi. And she did not say. <laughs> she did not say. I think it's just a fabric that they liked. Oh, okay. Well, the young lady who does, who sells these, I think every month at do you remember the name of the church? It was a, it's a United Methodist Church on, was it Connecticut and Jennifer? I can't remember. The one we went to to get the other jacket that I got. Oh, okay. It is Connecticut and Yeah, and they have a jazz uh, program once a month. I can't remember which Saturday. I think it's like the third Saturday of the month. So she's always there. I can send you the information and 
periodically she'll get shipments of new things in and some are muted tones and some are bright colors. <sighs> thinking about well Well, one of the projects I'm working on is a painting I started in 1988 in Panama and I've yet to finish. <laughs> and I've got sketches that I have worked on for a while and I'm working on that. I have a studio in Hyattsville, Maryland at the Pyramid Atlantic Art Center. And that is a, an interesting organization. They teach papermaking printmaking, if you want to make your own book, book arts, uh, and they also have an artist in residence program and other kinds of activities they give classes. I learned how to make paper there and uh, so I have all of these little sketches, I have all these Bible verses, prayers, I have a book full of ideas <laughs> and the challenge is uh, finding the time to put pen to paper. I'm not like some of the more um, modern artists who are doing lots with their iPads and on computers. I'm still with pencil and paper and paint, but uh, maybe I'll explore doing some more things electronically too. But uh, yeah. And music is one of the main muses. Um, a few years ago, I received a grant from the Arts and Humanities Council of Montgomery County, and I did a series on 10 jazz musicians. And in a way, it was semi-autobiographical because these were musicians who their songs at different points in my life had really inspired or influenced me. So they were songs from Ella Fitzgerald and Dee Dee Bridgewater and someone like Don Cherry, who was the first performing artist that I had to work with when I was in Abidjan, he came and gave a concert. And the lesson I learned from him 
was listen to what's going on around you and you'll be amazed at what you will learn. And while he was focusing on music because he did workshops and master classes with local musicians, I just sort of applied that across the board to just being a foreign service officer and remembering the saying, you have two ears and one mouth, so you should listen twice as much as you speak, and you might learn something. <laughs> so uh, the, the jazz series was a lot of fun to do, and that was the, one of the um, projects where I learned how to make paper and did a number of paintings on the paper that I made. My very first series that was inspired by music was actually the one that resulted in Jacob's Ladder, which is on the cover of the book uh, by Eileen Gunther. And that series was of the spirituals that my father sang that I listened to uh, while I was growing up. And uh, again, one of the reasons why I wanted to do the series of paintings on these songs was that sometimes it felt like people didn't use them, sing them as much as they had in the past, and you certainly didn't hear them very much on the radio, yet they told fascinating stories. Each one told a story. And this was around the time when they were collecting material for the National Museum of African American History and Culture. And I had these boxes of music from my father at the house. So my sisters and I went through and separated out all of the spirituals and material having to do with uh, African-American history and culture. He had a book that was published in 1932 that featured photos of all of the arrangers who had arranged spirituals. Then it had information on each spiritual, some of them I had never even heard. And so books like that and recordings by Paul Robeson and others, we collected all those, put them aside, and one of the curators from the museum came over and went through and took just about everything. And so they're now housed in that museum, and we were thrilled because that means that future generations will have access to those particular arrangements. And how this all actually started is we went to a concert where someone was singing songs that Paul Robeson had sung, but he didn't sing the arrangements that Lawrence Brown and others had done. And after the concert, we asked him why, and he said he couldn't find them. They weren't available commercially. So we were happy to donate them to the museum's library because that means future generations will be able to take advantage and, and use those, uh, those, uh, that sheet music. So, yes, themes, uh, I do a lot of work around music because I listen to music a lot when I'm working, except when I'm listening to WAMU's public affairs programs, and then sometimes that inspires other kinds of paintings. <laughs> right now I'm working on two. One is uh, Nasty Woman and Bad Ombre slash Bad Dude, and it's all in their hair, and I'll be happy to share that one with you in when we're done. And um, just uh, some of the others are, uh, sometimes I get invited to donate something to a nonprofit, like the, the Dominican Sisters used to have a fundraiser, an art fundraiser every year. So I did some work for them just on themes like uh, homelessness and 
fishers of men, those kinds of themes that would uh, perhaps resonate with the people who might want to buy some of the art to support their, um, their activities. I was curious uh, to hear about your high school class mm -hmm. because it sounded so much more inclusive or broader than anything that I'm familiar with in high schools now. I don't know if that was particularly in Brooklyn or... It's uh, New York City Public Schools. Okay. And New York... Yeah, New York City has what I consider one of the most amazing vocational education programs. They have Bronx High School of Science, Music and Art, which is fine arts and, mu and classical and other kinds of perform musical performance. They have the... Um, Let's see, they've got an engineering school, they have an aviation technology school, they have a printing school. I went to High School of Art and Design, which was commercial art, but it also included theater art. So if you wanted to be a lighting designer or stage set or build stage sets, that, that was all part of that education program. Uh, they're all different kinds. I think they now have some new ones that didn't exist when I was in high school. One that does maritime uh, education in conjunction, I guess it's like a feeder program for the Coast Guard. <coughs> so all of these schools are very competitive and you have to take an exam to get in or present a portfolio. So my uh, junior high school teach, art teacher and other teachers helped me put together a portfolio which I went, had to go up to the school and present. And then, based on the portfolio review, either you were in or you were not. And uh, I was fortunate to be able to get in. And then they had various uh, rotations in that you could, uh, in the 10th grade, you were obliged to take drafting, photography, um, clay, uh, sculpture, and watercolor. So they exposed you to a, a lot of different uh, disciplines and then you could decide what you wanted to major in and I chose display and advertising art as where I wanted to uh, focus my energies and so as a display and advertising art student one of the things we did was we had to decorate the lunchroom and so that was an adventure a lot of fun but it still exists and they have moved into a new building which I haven't visited yet I keep threatening to go but it is still in the advertising district. And the whole idea of these vocational high schools is you have the specialized program of study, but you also have an academic program. So whereas my friends who went to a regular academic high school got out at 2.30, I usually didn't get out until 3.30, 4 o'clock. But I was still able to have an after-school job in the public library. <laughs> Yes. I used to do some workshops uh, before, but I've been working, I'm still working part-time at the Department of State. I work in the office that handles uh, FOIA requests as what they call a reviewing officer. We've been kind of busy lately. Um, I go in about three days a week, so that unfortunately doesn't leave as much time for creative pursuits as I would like because also being an elder is also like a, another part-time job. But it's an exciting one because 
as an elder, I'm on the mission team, and we have a relationship with a public charter school in Anacostia, and one of our goals in, in, in that relationship is to support their arts program. So that's dance and music and visual arts. So I go over there to take things over and find out what's going on and what's needed and that kind of thing. So, yeah, that kind of keeps me busy. So I don't get into the studio as much as I'd like, but I don't get up at 4, <laughs> maybe 5. Oh, absolutely, yes, because we have a cat that demands it. <laughs> well, if there are no other questions, I would just like to thank you all for inviting me to come and share some of my art. And um, I left some of my business cards over there, so you're welcome to have one and um, visit the website, and I'd be happy to have any of you come visit in the studio. Hyattsville is becoming quite the arts destination. The city of Hyattsville has invested a lot in trying to become the gateway arts district of that part of Maryland, which abuts the uh, Rhode Island Avenue corridor, which also is the Brentwood arts district. So they're trying to connect up everything all the way up to College Park. and. Uh, Pyramid Atlantic is, is one of the major arts institutions in that area. Well, I want to thank you for being here, and indeed your art does bring hope.